0: So to close out this series, here is what I would like to do. I would like just to have a conversation, basically explain why I did what I did during the series. Why did I talk about creation and Adam and Eve and Noah and the flood and violence and genocide and other things that we've spoken about in this series the way that I did? Uh, the way that maybe somebody who was raised in a church in the United States of America sometime in the past 30 or 40, 50 years, whatever, uh, in a in a different way. W- why would I do that? There is, there is a concern. Here's my belief about the Bible. The Bible is telling the story that we are all looking for, 100%. Everybody's looking for the story that the Bible is telling. And yet we have people running from the Bible. We have people running from the church. Those numbers in America specifically are just exploding. And yet the Bible is telling the story. The Bible is telling the story everybody's looking for, but we're running from the Bible. So is there something that we are misunderstanding? So I want to go back into my own life and just explain my journey a little bit because my, my journey brought me to this place and, and maybe that'll make sense because Throughout this series, I think some of the things that I have said have been troubling, not for the non-church goer or not for the new church attender or not for the person who just started reading the Bible, but for people like me who've been around church a long time or around the Bible for a really, really long time. So I want to tell you my story, how I got to where I am And again, my concern is that the Bible is telling the story everybody's looking for, the whole world needs to hear it, and yet people are running from it, and that is breaking the heart of God. So here's my story. I grew up in a bubble. I grew up in a very nice, warm, comfortable bubble where nobody challenged the Bible the Bible says we should always be prepared to give an answer. I was fully unprepared to give an answer. I felt like my church never prepared me to give any answers. And you know what? I don't want to blame my church because maybe it was just me. <laughs> maybe I wasn't paying attention. Uh, maybe I was just zoned out during all the messages or whatever. Or I could blame Krista because many people know this. I've said this before. Krista and I grew up in the same church. And if she wasn't so beautiful, I wouldn't have sat there gawking at her all the time, maybe paid attention to the Bible. So for whatever reason, let me not blame the church totally, but I was fully unprepared. And I was in this nice bubble and everything. Nobody said contradictions. Nobody said problem. Nobody said boo, right? Everything was fine. I go to college and it's just more of the same. The bubble just got bigger. It just got more comfortable. And I remember here's something, an incident that really stands out in my mind. It's very important actually. I was in a preaching class. We all, there's 25 students, whatever it was in this class, we had to preach on our favorite Bible verse and we had to do like a five to seven minute sermon. So we all did it. I remember one of the guys got up there. Oh my gosh, it was incredible. Now he had a Bible, he had a Bible much bigger, like five, six, seven, maybe 10 times. It was big. He held it over his head and he slammed it down to the floor and it was so big and heavy like the floor shook. And he got up and stood on this massive Bible and he preached his guts out for like 15 minutes. And I tell you what, all of us in class were like, it was so moving. It was so inspiring. We felt like the Holy Spirit just whoosh descended upon the room. People's legs were shaking. Amen. It was just so awesome. And here's, here's this isn't where my bubble burst, but it's where a question mark entered So I'm sitting there and everybody's caught up in the excitement and the Holy Spirit's moving. It is so awesome. And I flashed back. I flashed back to just a few months prior to that. In between high school and Bible college for me, I went to a cross-cultural ministry school in Wiesbaden, Germany. And in the first day of the class, here's 40 people from all around the world in this class. In between the break, the director calls all the Americans aside and kind of gives us a rebuke. He says, You Americans, when you go back in that classroom, you get your Bibles off the floor. We had all put our Bibles on the floor. He says, that is highly offensive to the other students from other parts of the world. Now, fast forward back to the preaching class again. Here's this guy. The Spirit's moving. Yay, yay, Holy Spirit. We're so excited. He's standing on his Bible. And what we think is the Holy Spirit moving is really just our personal preference, Do you know the difference between the Holy Spirit moving and your own personal preference? So I realized I had a personal preference, things that made me very comfortable. And I chalked them up to God. We'd be very careful with that. I'll never forget the day, many, many years ago, we had somebody come and uh, sing at Grace Community. They led the worship. They led the music. And I had a couple right after church came to me and says, that was the most anointed. Like when this person started to sing, the Holy Spirit just sent in the room, get this person back every single Sunday. So I was really clear, man, that was, they walked away. And another church person walked up to me and said, the moment that person began to sing, the Holy Spirit left the room. Do we really know the difference between we feel like, oh yeah, the Holy Spirit said, could it be the Holy Spirit? It could just be our personal preference out of our culture. And so a question mark entered my nice little warm bubble. I had to wonder, am I correctly interpreting what the Bible is saying according to my personal preference, according to the culture I came out of? Now, fast forward again. Now I'm on staff at a church. I'm in my very early 20s. I've just come out of Bible college. I'm on staff. There's a guy in the church, a young guy about my age, getting a PhD in political science, from GW, super smart guy, super nice guy. And he said to me, we're sitting there, we're drinking. I don't drink coffee. He's drinking coffee. And uh, I don't know, I'm drinking water juice or something. We're having something quick to eat. And he looks at me, I've never heard this before in my life. He says, John, do the, do the contradictions in the Bible, do they bother you? Do they cause you to distrust the Bible when the Bible clearly contradicts itself and there's obvious errors? I'm like, what? I've never heard that. No one ever had said anything like that to me. I've never engaged in a conversation. I'm like, what? The? And then he just opens up the Bible. and says, look here, Judas, it says he hung himself. And then look over here. See right here? It says that he, he fell down off of a cliff. I mean, it's giving us two different stories about how Judas, the betrayer of Jesus, dies. Wait a minute. What's going on here? And there's other contradictions, which I could walk through. I didn't have an answer. I wasn't fully prepared to give an answer. And I needed to. And I had a decision to make. Was I going to press into this very uncomfortable area? Or was I going to back off and just be safe? And I remember praying at the time, God, I want to fully understand you. I want you to take me 100% where you want me to go. Because I believe your word is magnificent and I need to understand your message to me and to the entire planet. I I need to understand, God, what is being said here. And the picture that's in my mind is God standing above me in my nice bubble and he's got a really big pin and he's about ready to pop it. Has God ever popped your comfortable bubble? I think it's what God wants to do. He wants to stretch us. He wants to grow us. We ne- if we ever reach the place where we're at a place of comfort, lukewarmness, if we ever reach that place, that's a dangerous place to be. It's not a God place to be. God wants to keep us learning and growing. Are you at that place right now? So anyway, I begin, I begin to press in and um, ask God to show me, help me to understand some things. I'd like to read you a quote from St. Augustine. St. Augustine is a 4th century North African bishop, pretty, pretty much on everybody's short list for one of the greatest theologians of all time. This is what he says. If we are perplexed by any apparent contradiction in Scripture, it is not allowable to say that the author of this book is mistaken. But either, one, the manuscript is faulty. We have some really great manuscripts. Two, the translation is wrong. We have some really, really great translations. Or three, you have not understood. Bingo. We got great manuscripts. Or we got great translations. I lacked an understanding. So I wanted to take a pragmatic approach as to this tension I was feeling on the inside, which was pretty, pretty strong here. And I said, you know what? I believe that God's word is inspired. It's infallible. I believe it's entirely unique. It tells us about a God of love, tells about a God of equality, a God of justice. The gospel, the story of Jesus Christ, entirely unique. Reminds me of C.S. Lewis, what he said about the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's nothing else like it. Only God could have thought that up. I believe that, but I didn't have answers. I wasn't fully prepared. And I'm looking at people who are running from the Bible, and I fully believe that God loves us and the Bible has the answer that we're all looking for. How do I bring all of this together? So this is my journey. And I decide to myself, I'm going to have to go back and understand the writers of the Bible who are all basically Jewish. It comes out of a Jewish world, comes out of a Jewish context, which, to be honest with you, I'd never really considered before. How are they interpreting what they wrote? I mean, what were they having to say about the book that they wrote? This this is a Jewish book. Jesus is Jewish. The writers are basically all Jewish. How are they interpreting what they wrote? Kind of what I'd been doing is it's almost as if I write something and come somebody's coming along to me and saying, Now let me tell you what you meant when you wrote this. It's kind of what I was doing with the Bible. I was discrediting that. So Around this time, I I, I take a trip to Israel, and that just really begins to put me in the right headspace. And so I start asking these questions. What did the writers of the Bible intend? The people that wrote the Bible, the Jewish people wrote the Bible. Am I interpreting in the way that they interpret their own writing? And what I realized is I wasn't. And that's just a huge fundamental problem, everybody. So I began to study the context, because context is king. Listen, I'll put it this way. None of us like to be taken out of context. I remember a time in my life when I had somebody in my life who had done some really wrong things and then they began to go out and say some wrong things about me because of the wrong things they had done. And somebody called me on the phone and they just ranted and raved against me for about 15 minutes. And when they were done, they said, you know, they, um, well, actually I said to them, I said, well, okay, okay, I hear you, um, would you like me to tell you my perspective? And I actually have proof. I have other people. I actually have date, I, you know, pen to paper, you know, I have something I can prove to you that there's a whole nother perspective. And they said these words to me. He says, no, I'm not interested in any other perspective than the way I believe about this thing right now. I mean, that's just wrong. So context is really, none of us like to be taken out of context. You don't like to be, you don't live your life that way. I don't live my life that way. We have to be very consistent. But when I came to the Bible, interpreted the Bible, I took it completely out of context. I was totally inconsistent with what I was doing. It'd be like, look, if you were to call up one of your black friends today and say, look, I'd like you to give me your thoughts on our current racial problems in our world, but slavery and Jim Crow can have nothing to do with it. It'd be offensive. Or you'd call a historian and say, hey, I'd like you to tell me everything about the Revolutionary War. Uh, but the oppression of England and overtaxation can have nothing to do with it. Now go. It's not, it's not gonna work. It's not gonna work. So I realized I needed to go back and look at what the people that wrote the Bible, the Jewish people, what did they mean when they wrote what they did? I needed to be consistent with that. So I want to read from a 12th century Torah scholar recognizes one of the greatest Torah scholars of all time. His name is Maimonides. This is what he says. Now, on the one hand, the subject of creation is very important, but on the other hand, our ability to understand these concepts is very limited. Therefore, God described these profound concepts which his divine wisdom found necessary to communicate to us using ready allegories, metaphors, and imagery. I never considered that. So during this series, why did I do what I did? When it comes to the topics of creation, Adam, Eve, the flood, violence, genocide, the age of the earth, what I realized is this, the people who wrote the Bible, the Jewish people were not interpreting the Bible the way I was interpreting the Bible. And that was just a fundamental problem. So I needed to figure out what they meant when they wrote what they did. And what I realized is, is they didn't mean back then when they wrote it, or even to this day, they didn't mean it the way I was interpreting it. So I had to go through a very difficult, stretching, bubble bursting time because that was just that was just the truth. So the reason why I did what I did is because I had to go back and figure that out with a correct hermeneutic of putting things in their context. The Bible is Jewish. Jesus is Jewish. The culture that the Bible came out of is a culture vastly different than mine. The Bible is the most intellectually sophisticated piece of literature out of the ancient Near East. And I was rolling up thinking that I could understand it on my own without putting it in the proper context. Now listen, everybody, as I said a couple of weeks ago, anybody can understand the main mission of the Bible. God is a God of love. He's a God of redemption. Everybody's created equal before in the eyes of God. Those things are so clear to understand. But the finer points, the deeper points, from a piece of literature that is so intellectually sophisticated, it was a little bit arrogant of me to think that I was going to figure it out without doing some serious study into the very Jewish people who wrote the text. And so for the past couple of decades, that's where I've been headed to understand that. Now, when I did, when I got that framework, when I had that contextual understanding of what are the Jewish writers and interpreters and scholars saying, the dominoes, the pieces to the puzzle just really begin. To fall into place. It was amazing. I'd always felt the Bible was inerrant, always felt the Bible was infallible, always felt the Bible was inspired. But now I understood that the Bible was far more magnificent than what I had ever dreamed or imagined. Now I realize that it truly had the answer that every single person was looking for. And I stand today in awe of the Bible. But out of my excitement of finding that, What I don't want to do in this series as I end everything off today is to give the misconception that somehow I have the interpretation and you must believe this. I just wanted to share with you, as I said at the very beginning, look, these concepts, particularly for an American church person who has not looked at a Jewish context, which most of us haven't, at least that's been my experience, this is going to be new and it's going to be different. But just to think about it, just think about what is maybe the proper way or the good way or a good fundamental way to look at interpretation or to do hermeneutics, which is basically interpreting scripture. What would be the way to do that? Okay. And then to consider this, not saying that you have to, if you're, you're, if you're believing some different way than what I am suggesting here, that you're wrong. I am just saying that this has been my journey and that most people I know, I think, real well, actually, every person I know agrees that context is king, and that we can't all of a sudden say when it comes to the Bible, we're not going to say context. That's all. That's, that's all I'm saying, okay? So I find myself, because of all that, just in complete awe of the Bible, and now I want to switch gears, and I want to talk about science. And there's some things here that are really important, because... People are running from the Bible. They're running from the church. They're running from Christians. They believe the Bible is anti-intellectual. It's anti-science. And what's amazing, you think about the Jewish people who wrote the Bible. Are they anti-intellectual? Are they anti-science? Just just think about this fact for a second, everybody. Jewish people make up 0.02% of the world's population. Jewish people have one over 20% of the Nobel Peace Prizes for Science and Mathematics. Now, I don't think you can say people who are highly sophisticated and highly mathematic and scientific or anti-intellectual and anti-science. Those two facts just don't measure out. The Bible, as I said a minute ago, is the most intellectually sophisticated piece of literature in the entire ancient world written by Jewish people. There is a serious culture of education, a serious culture of learning. Matter of fact, a Jewish scientist by the name of Albert Einstein said this, science without religion is lame. What is science and what is religion? There is a difference between the two and the Bible distinguishes that and Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, in this quote I'm about ready to read, really does a great job of helping us to understand the two. So here's what he says. Science is about explanation. Religion is about meaning. Science analyzes, religion integrates. Science breaks down things to their component parts. Religion binds people together in relationships of trust. Science tells us what is, religion tells us what ought to be. Everybody, not everybody does science. Not everybody does math. We're just not into that, not everybody. Some people are, but not everybody's into that. But what everybody does is religion. Because religion is telling us what ought to be, and everybody's interested in what it what ought to be. We all are interested in hope, meaning, purpose, fulfillment, those big questions that the Bible is asking. Not everybody does science. So Drew, the least likely person to go to church in America, he's knocking on the door of science to tell him what's the meaning of life. He's knocking on the door of science to tell him how things ought to be. Science can't answer those questions. We need to be clear about what science can do and what the Bible can do, what religion can do. Over here is the door to knock on to tell us happiness, hope, purpose, meaning in life, how things ought to be. That's the difference that needs to be distinguished. The Bible comes out of a culture of serious education and sophistication. What I was doing was casually walking up to this most sophisticated piece of literature in the entire ancient world and out of context, trying to understand it. You think about what the Bible has to say about learning. Jesus is asked, "What's the greatest commandment?" He says, "The love God with how? with your mind." How are we transformed by the renewing of our mind, Romans 12. One of the most famous words in the Bible is to repent. What does it mean? It means to change your mind. Jesus is the word. God speaks a word and creates. The 10 commandments are the 10 words. This is about serious learning, education, the highest degree of sophistication when it comes to intellectual thinking with rationale. It's how we're transformed. Famous scientist, Isaac Newton, says this about the Bible. I have a fundamental belief in the Bible as the word of God, written by those who were inspired. And I study the Bible every day. So science, science in the Bible, there's no contradiction because the Bible in Genesis chapters one and two is not telling us how, that's science. It's telling us who and why that's different. Then that's the question every single person is asking. Not everybody is asking about science because we don't all like science, but we all like to know the meaning and the purpose. And that is what, that is the story that Genesis 1 and 2 is telling. So, covenant. The whole Bible is built on a covenant. What's a covenant? An unbreakable promise. What we find as human beings, we keep breaking our promises. We can't seem to keep our promises. And God says, I will always keep my promise. Genesis chapter 1, if you read it in the Hebrew, what you'll find is dozens and dozens of sevens. This sentence has seven words. This sentence has 14 words. All multiple sevens. All over, over and over and over and over again. The word seven in Hebrew is, is the same root word that comes from a covenant, a promise, a Sabbath, a covenant, a binding. What is happening in Genesis 1? Is it telling us the science of the creation of the world? No, it's telling us that God has bound himself to all of the entire cosmos that God says, I have, ma- I'm making an unbreakable promise to you that I'll always be there for you. They will always come and rescue you. If you want to be rescued, I will rescue you out of the mess. It's telling us that the world is filled with chaos, but God is an order bringer. You ever feel like your life is spinning out of control? Maybe it's spinning out of control right now. God says, I will bring order to all of that chaos that's spinning out of control. If you'll trust me, if you'll turn to me. And what did Adam and Eve do? They said, we want to be God. God says, I want you to reflect me. So be God, reflect God, two different paths. We're constantly choosing the be God path, which brings nothing but chaos. And instead, when we choose to reflect God, reflect his character in the world, to live his character, reflect his character, it brings order. It brings the whole world into peace and order and harmony and love and all those things that we desire so much. But we keep choosing the be God path. So God, Genesis 1 and 2, creates a covenant and unbreakable promise with the entire world to bring order, and what do we do? We break our promise, so we go to covenant number two, and that is with Noah. And what we find with Noah is nothing has changed. People will choose their own way, they choose to be God, they choose to do their own thing, and the whole world is filled with violence and evil. It's a terrible place to live, and so God says, I'll make a covenant. And now we've gone from the whole cosmos, and God says, I'll make a covenant with all creatures, both human beings and animals. I'm making a covenant, and then Noah does what? He finds himself like Adam and Eve in a garden with forbidden fruit, getting drunk and a curse. Nothing has changed. And so that covenant is broken because Noah has been unfaithful to it all over again. George Bernard Shaw says this, the ordinary man is an anarchist. He wants to do as he likes. He may want his neighbor to be governed, but he himself doesn't want to be governed. We want other people to reflect God, but we want to be God. Because I want to do my own thing. That's Adam and Eve. That's Noah. Now we move to uh, Abraham, covenant number three. So it was with all cosmos. That's the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. And now it's all creatures with Noah. And now it's all nations with Abraham. God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And what does Abraham do? He breaks it. Instead of reflecting God's character, all nations, he lies to the Egyptian rulers. Instead of reflecting God's character to Hagar, they mistreat Hagar. They break the covenant. And now we move to Moses and another covenant. So we've gone from all the cosmos to all creatures, to all nations, and now to one people, the Jewish people. Will you reflect me? And instead they say, you know what? We want to be God. And what do they do when they want to be God? They bow down to the golden calf. They're ruled by the, instead of being rulers, Adam and Eve, I want you to rule and subdue the world. They say, we'll be ruled by the golden calf, which represents money, sex, and power. And they bow down to money, sex, and and total chaos breaks out because they're not reflecting God. They say, I want to be God. Now let's go all the way to David. So we've gone, all the cosmos. Then we go to all creatures, all nations, One people and now one person. You see the narrowing of the covenant now to one person. David starts out really well, but he ends poorly. Uriah the Hittite, a Gentile outside of the one people Israel. What does David do to him? He murders him after he has an affair with his wife Bathsheba. And what is the problem here, everybody? The problem is we are not keeping our end of the bargain. God makes an unbreakable promise to us and we just keep breaking our promise to Him. Here's what it says in 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, and we are, He remains faithful for He cannot disown Himself. He can't disown Himself. What is the message of the Bible? Message of the Bible is those you desire to do right and I desire to do right. I keep breaking my promise and chaos keeps breaking out. But God wants to bring order because he loves us and because he will never disown us because he has committed himself to us. That is the good news of God's word. And so he's going to come and he's going to rescue us in Jeremiah 31 shows a future in which God will do this in a new covenant. Look what it says. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant. Another covenant is coming. Another unbreakable promise. What's it going to be like? I'll tell you what it's going to be like. God says, I'm going to put my law in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they'll be my people. This struggle that you and I feel all the time, that we have it and we're surrounded by it with people doing the wrong thing, not the God thing. God is just saying when you reflect God's nature, you're basically doing the God thing, justice and mercy and forgiveness and grace and truth. And instead we keep doing the non-God thing. And God says, there's gonna come a day when I'm gonna write it in your hearts and in your minds where you're gonna want to do the God thing. Can you imagine a world in which everybody does the God thing, which everybody reflects? It'll be a world of total harmony and peace, not chaos. It's the world you and I want It is a world that is telling that story that all of us are looking for. Peace, harmony, joy, love, justice. Look what uh, Ian Provan says about this in his book, Seriously Dangerous Religion. Evil is not inevitable. It is, in the most fundamental sense, temporary. That's great news, everybody. It's temporary. The transformation is universal and it is radical. Now, now he's speaking about Jeremiah 31 specifically. Something fundamental changes in the future. God's law is now found written on the heart and God's spirit is found in the human being. What is envisaged here is not simply a return to the past. A new day is dawn. He's saying hope. Because of Jesus Christ, because of God's unbreakable covenant, the story is there is hope that I will actually have a day when I will want to do the God thing more than to do my own thing. That's a great day. That's a day of order, not of chaos. I want to end by telling you a story. The story about a minister, a retired minister, in one of the first churches that I served. He was in his 80s, Uh very much older in life, very dignified gentleman. Great voice, great minister voice. So deep. It was rich. He carried himself with a certain amount of class. I mean, for young ministers, we really looked up to him. Now, he had done well in life and he had owned a home. He could have sold that home. He could have rented that home to anybody out. It was a beautiful home. It was in a beautiful neighborhood. But he chose to bless his family, his daughter, and his grandkids by allowing them to live in this home free of charge, free of charge, beautiful home, beautiful neighborhood. They could live there free of charge, gifted it to them. One day he called me, he says, John, can you get some of the other young guys from church together um, and help me clean up uh, this home? I'd never been to this home before. And I, I said, sure. I met him there. I met him there with a number of young guys from church. And when we rolled up to this house in a beautiful neighborhood, I immediately knew that there was a much bigger problem than what I anticipated. There was trash and junk and just filth all over the front yard of this house, which totally did not make sense in the neighborhood it was in. And when I walked into this home, I had never in my life seen a home treated that poorly. There was trash everywhere. His family had lived there for years, and literally, they didn't take the trash out. They just dumped it. There was pizza box after pizza box and crust after crust and tomato sauce spread on the walls and a broken down motorcycle dripping gasoline and oil in the living room. There was one room that had trash that was above my head. It was disgusting. They treated this beautiful home with so much disrespect. And I looked at this minister so dignified. His face was so sad. He was at the point of tears at his family who he loved so much had treated this beautiful home with such disrespect. And we just spent hours just hauling truckload after truckload of trash out of this house. God has given us a beautiful home. That's Genesis 1 and 2. A beautiful home. And he says, now participate with me by reflecting my very nature, by doing the God thing, the right thing, the good thing in this world. And time after time, we've broken that promise We've broken that covenant and we've done the wrong thing and the world is filled with suffering and injustice and violence and evil and it breaks God's heart. And I can see, just like in this minister that day, I can see God almost crying, hurting, saying, you know what, I've I've given you my word. I've given you the story that you're all looking for. I love you with an unbreakable love. My word will lead you out. It will lead to order and peace and harmony and joy. And instead, we've turned it and we twist it, we misunderstood it. And man, everything's just breaking down around us. God's just saying, if you'll just understand it, you won't have to live in the pain and the suffering that you're living in. God's heart is broken. And for the church people like me, I'm a church person the multitudes of people who are running from the Bible because they don't realize it's telling us the story that we're all looking for and that I shouldn't participate in the process of them running away, but instead I should correctly understand it and beckon them home to a God who wants to embrace them, who's longing to embrace them. Everybody, the Bible's telling us, it's telling us the story that we're all longing for. Would you pray with me in conclusion that not only I and you would understand this beautiful story, this beautiful house, but that the whole world would know? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your graciousness and for your love. Thank you for this amazing story. Help us to communicate this story in a way that brings honor and glory to your holy name because the whole world needs this story. It's what we're all longing for. In Jesus' name, amen.